peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The Lord has blessed us indeed by hearing our prayer and calling us his own. Let us therefore seek him in a moment of prayer, asking him to bless our time of worship and use it to his honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, hear the prayer of your people and bless the worship to which you have called us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from number 119. Number 119, O all ye peoples, bless our God.
We confess the Lord together this evening using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 132. As we uh, move through these psalms that are part of the uh, Psalms of Ascent that were typically sung by God's people as they went up to Jerusalem for the feast days, Psalm 132 kind of stands out in part because it's quite a bit longer than most of the psalms in this section. In part because of the uniquely specific Form it takes. Um, this psalm begins as a prayer. The first ten verses are a prayer, uh, followed by a recollection, a confession of what God has promised, of what God has done. When we look at that prayer, he's asking that God would remember David's desire to establish the dwelling place of God at Jerusalem among the people of God, that the people might worship and rejoice before God. And then in response, he points out how God has promised that David would have a son to reign on his throne. He promised to dwell among his people at Jerusalem. He promised to bless his people and allow them to worship. And all of that has been fulfilled in Christ. This really is a psalm pleading for the fullness of what David longed for. David recognized himself utterly unworthy, but he also saw that he had no greater purpose in life than to worship the Lord, to bring Him glory. And so he pleaded that not only he, but all of God's people would be able to do that, knowing that God was there among them. And Jesus fulfilled that. So this is our psalm recognizing that God has answered the prayer, not in Jerusalem, but here in the church. That He dwells among us and that we have entrance as His priestly people because of what Jesus has done. What a blessing that is. 
Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has declared it for his dwelling, or desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's take up that psalm as our song of confession and of prayer as we sing number 277 in our Psalter hymnal. 277.
As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, note in our announcement bulletin the prayer request for the work in Madison, Indiana, and Reverend Colin Welch. And, um, and also, as we noted this morning, uh, please keep the Smith family in your prayers as they uh, mourn the passing of Bruce. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we recognize that you have fulfilled the longing and the desire of your people to have assurance that you would dwell among them and to be able to worship in your presence. For though once you were worshipped afar, from afar, through the tabernacle in Jerusalem, now you have ensured that we can worship in the fullness of your presence, because Jesus has fulfilled all that the tabernacle foretold and has set the Holy Spirit even in our very midst. Grant that we might never take that for granted, Lord, but cause us to stand in awe of the reality of the privilege that is ours to worship you in your very presence, to know you as a man knows his friend, to hear your word proclaimed regularly to us, and to sing praise and to offer our prayers, not through distant mediaries, but directly to you because of Jesus, your Son. Enable us to show with gratitude and with earnestness to our children the privilege and the blessing that is ours. And whether in time of need or in time of rejoicing, cause it to be our our greatest joy to enter into Your presence, Father. Lord, we bring before You all the needs of Your people. You know them very well. And you know all the needs, all of the sorrows, all of the joys of your people. We pray in in particular that you would watch over the Smith family this day. That you would comfort Linda and her children and grandchildren, their friends and and, uh, acquaintances as they grieve the loss of Bruce. And we pray that you would comfort them now and in the days ahead with reminders of your perfect promises and of Christ's victory over death for all who have trusted in him. And Lord, we pray that that the comfort that is ours as your church, the comfort that death has been defeated for us, the comfort that we've been reconciled to you, the comfort of knowing that we are always in your presence, that you hear our prayers and answer them as our faithful Father. Lord, make that promise to be, or those promises to be passionately embraced by your church and cause us to so rejoice in what you have done that we would be eager to tell our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends of how perfectly you have provided. Make it to be our great joy to gather together as the church, as this living 
temple in which you dwell. That we might encourage one another, that we might sing your praises together, that together we might might hear your very word. And then send us forth, eager to testify to what you have done. Filled with love for our neighbor and compassion for those who don't know you. Who don't know that peace and that joy and that confidence. Lord, we pray for the work in Madison, Indiana. It's a place where many are without hope. Where there is a degree of poverty, both physical and spiritual. Lord, we pray that your word, as Brother Welch brings it, would be proclaimed boldly and faithfully. And that many would be drawn in to hear that word and to proclaim your praises with a true and living faith. And we pray that you would multiply works such as this, spreading your saints into communities where as yet your word is not proclaimed. Where at this moment, there is no faithful gathering of the saints. That those who have not yet heard might hear anew. And that those who have been appointed to life might turn to Christ. We pray that you would make your church passionate and selfless about bringing the gospel to places where it is as yet not. And Lord, we pray that you would preserve within this land the freedom to do so. Increasingly, we see the enemies of truth, your enemies, gathering momentum and seeking to silence those who speak what is true and right. Concerned only for their own power and influence, and for the silencing of the truth that renders them guilty. Father, we pray that you would protect your church, your beloved bride, from their attacks. That you would raise up godly leaders as our governors and president and lawmakers and judges. And that all of those whom you set in positions of such power you would cause to bow the knee to you, that the land might be ruled not by strong leaders, but by godly leaders who are concerned not merely with the economy or with appearances, but who are concerned with righteousness and justice and truth. And Father, where our current leaders refuse to serve you in this way, where they refuse to acknowledge that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we pray that you, would either, that you would either bow their knee before you and teach them to do so, or that you would remove them and put in their place those who will serve you, those who will preserve freedom. But Lord, we pray that you would not only preserve freedom for us, but that you would cause your church to eagerly use it. For far too long we have lived comfortably, satisfied to worship you without seeking to draw others in to join us. 
Father, grant that your church might no longer be satisfied simply to be silent in the midst of a dying world. But make us and our children and our grandchildren to be passionate about your honor and about our neighbor's good. Make us to proclaim boldly how you've answered our prayers, how you've given us healing, how you've forgiven our sins, how you've transformed our lives, how you've given us hope even in the face of death and confidence in the face of this world's uncertainties so that they might see that there is a hope that is far greater than the leaders among men and the leaders in the media and the leaders on... They are all flesh. They will all fall. But you will never let us down. Empower and encourage your people that we might bring that message to the world at large. And Lord, we pray that you would renew us deep within that you would make it our passion simply to commune with you, to pray unceasingly, to sing songs of thanksgiving, to dig deep into your word, to speak to one another about spiritual matters that truly matter, so that day by day we might grow closer to you. Grant that our faith might never devolve into mere formalism, that we might never be satisfied with mere appearance, but that we might crave each day a deeper, livelier, livelier, more full relationship with you. And Lord, fulfill that desire. Now as we look to your word, we pray that you would allow that word to dig deep within us to encourage us and guide us in pursuing a wholehearted relationship with you by the power of your Spirit within us. And when you send us from this place, send us forth, we pray, refreshed and eager to take on the week ahead with all of its challenges and with all of its joys. This now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look to God's Word as it speaks to us about prayer, let's stand and, uh, and sing one of the prayers of Scripture, which we find in Selection 130 from our Psalter hymnal. It's a rendering of Psalm 71. We'll sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 5 of 131.
our text this evening is Lord's Day 45 in our catechism. Lord's Day 45. And this, um, young people, you should know this, conclude, or begins, begins our concluding subsection within the catechism. Catechism is divided in three parts, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And in that last section, um, the two biggest portions, of course we talk about the, um, the sacraments and whatnot, but, but then there's the section on the Ten Commandments and then the section on the Lord's Prayer. And this, can, this begins that section on the Lord's Prayer. But first I'd like to read with you from Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, the first 13 verses. <clears throat> now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us, this, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or, if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Now, Lord's Day 45 has four questions concerning prayer. The first is, why do Christians need to pray? And the answer is because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God gives His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank Him for them. How, how does God want us to pray so that He will listen to us? Well, first, we must pray from the heart. To no other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask, uh, commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. And third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation that even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? 
everything we need, spiritually and physically, as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. And then we're asked, what is that prayer? And the answer is the Lord's Prayer that we uh, commonly pray. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, prayer is an activity which we confess, which we believe is essential. Our office bearers, ministers, elders, and deacons alike are obligated by our church order to maintain constantly their prayers and maintain the congregation by their prayers. As a congregation, we promise before God that we will pray for each of the children that is baptized among us. And those children, as they're growing up, we teach them to pray before their meals and at bedtime and in worship. So we know that prayer is important. And God's word allows there to be no doubt about that. Otherwise, he would not have urged in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we pray without ceasing. Nor would his psalms so continually commend prayer to his people. And surely if prayer was not essential, Jesus would not have assured us that whenever we pray in his name, the Father will answer. Now, of course, the world laughs at our preoccupation with prayer. You're talking to yourself, they tell us. That's not going to change anything. It's a waste of time. It's a bunch of foolishness. We even hear leaders, both governmental leaders and social leaders in our world, scorning the idea in the face of tragedy, in the face of uh, murders, scorning the idea that prayer is significant or makes any kind of difference. But they can't understand. They cannot understand. Because they don't believe that God is real and that he is sovereign over the world and that he loves his people and answers them when they plead with him. The world laughs at prayer, but God delights to hear his children come before him in prayer. So, for the next few Lord's Days, until the end of this series through the Catechism, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the various elements of our prayer. But we need to begin by looking at prayer in general, both its nature and how God calls us to do it. And we need that opportunity to study prayer. Because God has chosen to honor prayer as something that is absolutely integral and essential to the Christian life. In fact, our catechism says that prayer is more important than any other means of giving God thanks. That being the case, we need to master the concept, the idea of prayer so that we can incorporate it into the very fabric of life. God's children express their gratitude through persistent prayer. That's our theme this evening. God's children express their gratitude through persistent prayer. And the first thing we need to recall about prayer is that it is to be our confident response to God's Word. Think on that. Prayer is a response It's not a cause of what God does. It's not something we do without regard to who God is or what He does. It is our response to God, to who He is, to what He has said, to what He has done. Prayer is our answer to God. It's the way we acknowledge 
what he has done for us and to us. Especially what he has done in Christ. By sending his son, God has created a new relationship with us. Apart from Christ, we were his enemies. Apart from Christ, we had no hope of anything good coming to us when we stand in the presence of God. But Jesus forgave our sin. Jesus reconciled us to God. Jesus caused us to be adopted as God's sons and daughters. And prayer is our acknowledgement of that as we come before God, not with fear, not with worry, not with doubt, not with wonder, but with confidence that He hears us, that He loves us, that He receives us. As our response, prayer has several important functions for the Christian. I think Lord's Day 45 is both accurate and biblical in highlighting gratitude. Prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. Because think about it. What did Jesus come to do? Ultimately, He came to renew us. He came to restore us to God. He came to make us into the priestly people that sin ruined us from becoming. And prayer is essential to that because if we're renewed, we have to have a relationship. Prayer is the communication aspect of the relationship. And if there is to be a relationship, then it must be built on communion. It must be built on speaking. So when we enter into that process... When we pray to Him, we're showing gratitude for the fact that He has restored us to Himself. It's more than that. Not only is it a means of gratifying or of of, uh, thanking God, it's it's a means of glorifying Him. When we pray, we don't come on the basis of what we've done. We don't come on the basis of what we have accomplished. We come on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So inherently, our prayer is a means of glorifying God. It's also a means of confessing to Him. When we come to God, we don't come as those who have accomplished much and earned things in His sight. No, we come as those who are weak. We come as His children. Those who are constantly in need. Those who are utterly reliant on the Lord. We come confessing our weakness, our unworthiness, our reliance And we bring requests, requests for forgiveness, requests for help, requests for things physical and spiritual. So for all of these purposes, showing our thankfulness, glorifying God, confessing to God, bringing our requests for all of these things and more, prayer is an absolutely essential act for the Christian. However, it's not merely a means of response, it's a means of response to God. We pray not generically to a God but to the true God who reveals himself in scripture young people many are they in our age who lift up prayer as essential regardless of whom you pray to to them it doesn't matter and they will tell you that explicitly these are the social the social media influencers these are the movers and shakers of our society in some ways. And they will tell you it doesn't matter whether you pray to the God of the Bible or to the Allah of the Muslims or to the 
Mormon God. It doesn't pray, matter if you pray to the God of the Sikhs or the creation itself, the world itself, as some of the Native Americans do. Or if you just... Well, they don't care if you pray to Scooby-Doo. Because to them, prayer isn't about the one you address. It's about you. It's very little, very di- not very different from meditation. It's something that you do just to center yourself, to give you the hope that there's someone beyond you out there. But that's empty. If it doesn't matter who it is you're praying to, then that means there's really no one out there to listen. It's a fiction. It's a figment of your imagination. And that's just, you know, talking to yourself. But that's not what the Bible describes, is it? The Bible tells us that there is one true God. He's the one who made us. He's the one who redeemed all who trust in Christ. He's the one who dwells with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is able to help and who in love desires to help. That's the one we pray to. To pray to anyone else, to anything else, is absolute folly. You see, praying aright relies on our understanding of who God is. Remember what we learned all the way back in Lord's Day 9. Why do we confess God as our creator? By that confession, we recall that that God made everything that is. His standing as creator reminds us that he is absolutely able to meet our every need. Imagine a man who was determined to build the perfect house for him. So rather than just jumping in and doing it, He goes out and he gets a job in the building trades as a carpenter. And then after a while he gets a job as a plumber and then as an electrician and then as a roofer and then as an HVAC guy. He learns all of the different trades. He learns all of the features on houses that appeal to him, all that would be useful to him, also the things that are bad ideas, the things that don't last, the things that cause problems. After a number of years of this, he sits down and he designs his house from the foundation up, incorporating all the good ideas, jettisoning all the bad ideas. And then once he gets it all on paper, he starts building. Block by block, board by board, wire by wire, shingle by shingle, until it is absolutely all complete. Now that man, being intimately familiar with the design and the formation of every aspect of that home. If the plumbing stops up, is he capable of fixing it? If there's a short in the wiring, is he able to track it down? If there's a problem with the drainage around the foundation, is that man qualified? Of course he is. He designed and built every single aspect of it. There's no one else that you would want to call because no one else knows that house as well. And not only that, but he longs to fix it. That house was a labor of love to him. He's not going to allow it to fall into disrepair over an errant leak, right? Well, how much more God who designed not just the broad span of the world, but every one of its molecules and all of the component parts of those molecules, setting them all in place, ordaining the travel of every cell and every cellular structure throughout all eternity, all to the end that He has ordained. Is there anyone who is more able to meet the needs of His people? Is there anyone more desirous And not just because he's the creator, 
Look at the cross. When you're in need, when you're struggling, when you feel alone, think on the cross. God loved us so much that even though we deserved His wrath, even though we had done exactly what He designed us not to do, exactly what He commanded us not to do, exactly what our own conscience testified was wrong, nonetheless He sent His Son, while we were still His enemies, to suffer and die on our behalf, to endure His curse, so we would not have to. If He loves us that much, is He not going to hear our prayer, meet our needs, and restore us? Of course He is. So we can go to Him with the utmost confidence. And we must. Think on what we heard in our scripture reading. Luke 11 verse 2. Jesus didn't tell His disciples, if you pray, do it this way. No. When you pray. Jesus assumed they would pray. It was a given. An assumed part of life lived before God. That's because prayer is part of the relationship for which we were saved. God wants us to have communion with Him. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. Think of, a, think of a very competent and understanding man who has a wife. Is he able to meet the needs of his wife, to provide well for her without her saying a word? Probably. But does he want her to speak to him? To express her desires? To give him thanks? Absolutely. He longs for that communion. He loves her. He wants to spend time with her. He wants to hear what's on her heart. And all the more so God. Surely he could meet our every need without us saying a single word. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 8 that God knows our needs before we ever speak. But he awaits our prayers because he longs for that relationship. In essence, God says, I will meet your every need when you tell me of the need and ask me to help. He calls us to pray as our means of asking. James 1, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives richly to all who request. James 4 verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have So you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do you hear that? You do not have because you do not ask. God wants us to ask, to express our reliance upon Him. Now that's not to say that He'll always give us exactly what we ask for. 1 John 5 tells us that He answers our prayers according to His good will. So he might answer in a way that's different than we expected, but that's better because of what he knows and we don't. But nonetheless, we can be confident he will answer, and he will answer well. Ultimately, prayer is a living confession of our confidence in the Lord. Think of the the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He wants us to show that we long for him to be glorified. We long for him to be regarded as holy before all the world. Give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to acknowledge that we can't get our most basic sustenance apart from Him. Forgive us our sins. He wants us to acknowledge we don't deserve communion with Him, but we long for it and we know that only He can give it. Lead us not into temptation. The world says temptation is fine. It's how you respond to it. The worldling says, I can handle temptation. I'm strong enough. But the Christian says, 
Only God can deliver me from the pits and the traps that Satan has laid before me. The Lord wants us to respond confidently to what he has revealed. Trusting in his Son, confident in his compassion, believing that he is entirely able and desirous to do what we need. And that's the second thing we need to remember here is that he wants us to completely reveal our need. Again, Jesus said, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. But despite that, he wants us to confess those needs to him. In fact, he wants it to be a twofold confession. He wants us to confess what it is we need. Do you need healing? Do you need wisdom? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need reconciliation with a friend? Do you need strength to do what you think you can't? What is it that you need? Because when you confess that, what you're confessing is, I'm too weak. I'm not enough. I'm insufficient. Young men, that's hard for us, isn't it? We don't like to admit that we're too weak, but we are. We're too weak to get through a single day on our own. And so God wants us to confess that, to confess, I'm not enough to do the things that need to be done by me. I'm not able to keep myself safe. I'm not able to make myself productive. I'm not able to fix this problem. And then we need to confess that we believe He is. I believe you can keep me safe. I believe you can make me productive. I believe you can strengthen me. I believe you can fix this absolute mess that I have created. We're confessing our weakness, but His strength. We see that modeled in the parable related in Luke 11. The man in need of bread goes to the house of his friend and he knocks persistently. Why is he knocking? Well, he has a problem. He needs bread and he has no way to get it on his own. Moreover, he's convinced that his friend does have the bread that he needs. He has a need. He believes his friend is able to meet that need. His persistent knocking is a form of confessing, even a form of praying. He's confessing, I need something I can't provide and I know that you can. And his friend in the house meets that need, doesn't he? He gets out of bed disturbing his children, unlocking the door. He provides the bread that his persistent friend needs. But would he have done so if his friend had not bothered to knock? Of course not. Unless his friend confessed his need, unless his friend confessed his confidence that his already in bed friend was able, there's no way. It was only when he humbled himself to completely reveal his need that the need was met for him. And Jesus uses this story to show how we must pray to our Heavenly Father. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. As we confess our need and God's sufficiency, He will provide for us. James 4 teaches us a very similar lesson. There the Lord tells us that God does not meet the needs of those who believe that they're sufficient in themselves. It's only those who humble themselves, acknowledging their weakness, confessing their inability. It's only for them that God provides. And he says in verse 10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, the church must pray to God in that humble, faith-filled manner. As we pray to God day by day, revealing to him our our absolute belief that we are too weak, that we are insufficient. We're teaching ourselves, aren't we? I'm not enough. I will make a mess of it. But we're also teaching ourselves. He is enough. He will make it all right. And as we do that, we walk forward with absolute confidence. And when things seem to go haywire, when, things, when the plan just falls apart, and it does, doesn't it? But when the plan falls apart, we won't panic. Because we know this doesn't depend on me. It depends on Him. When deadlines get missed, when people call in sick, when you get injured or the weather turns in a way that you didn't anticipate, all of those countless variables that are outside of our control and that always, it seems, invariably snarl the plans that we have so carefully laid. If we're trusting in ourselves, it will utterly undo us. But if we're trusting in God, who knows everything, who sees everything, who's planned everything perfectly, we won't fear, we won't worry, we won't gnaw our fingernails down to the nubs. But we'll just fall to our knees again and say, Lord, you knew, and you know, and you're able. And we'll get up and we'll do the next thing with confidence in Him. And again, we can do that because of what He's shown us in Christ. You look at the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ on earth, it didn't look like it was going according to plan. Here comes the Son of God. And no one acknowledges Him as such. There he is living as a humble carpenter's apprentice. And then, when finally he begins to reveal his power, his wisdom, his omnipotent ability, to the leaders of the church who have longed for precisely this one, who have prayed for precisely this one, do they rally around him and say, this is the one for whom we've been waiting? No, they do their best to undermine him, to shut him up, to sideline him, to get rid of him, to discredit him. Why? Because he threatened them. And though the crowds followed him, they did their absolute utmost as leaders among the Jews to get rid of him, and it looked like they succeeded. They not only got rid of him, they didn't just discredit him, they got him killed on a cross on a, in a way that would uniquely demonstrate to a Jew that he was cursed by God. What more could they do to discredit and remove the one who was a threat to their power, and yet it was exactly what God ordained, so that you could be saved, so that God's curse against your sin could be perfectly paid. Only God could do that. And if He could do that, how much more can He solve the little struggles that we face? James 
4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And so then, having confessed our needs, our prayer must be confirmed by our reliance, our continual reliance on Christ's promises. And that's the last thing we need to see here. Because you see, prayer isn't effective. In fact, it's worse than useless if we don't actually believe that it helps. Prayer that is spoken from habit or custom, but not from the heart. Prayer that is offered out of superstition. It's worse than useless. It's an offense. Prayer is important. God expects His people to pray persistently, even unceasingly, but it must be done with a reliance on Christ and His promises. Explain what I mean. There's an old gag that we see sometimes in television shows where something breaks in the house. Maybe the plumbing springs a leak. And the hubby says... uh, I'll just go get my tools and I'll get that fixed. And, and the wife looks all so supportive. Okay, hon, you go get your tools. And meanwhile, you see she's rolling her eyes. And as soon as he walks out the door, walks down the basement, she goes and grabs the phone and calls the plumber. And everybody laughs. But it's faithlessness in action. With her words... She's supporting him. She's encouraging him. But in the reality of the situation, she's undermining him. She doesn't trust him. She doesn't believe in him. And she's setting him up for failure. We mustn't pray to God with an unbelieving roll of our eyes. We mustn't pray for help from God and then act as though God won't answer or won't hear. We mustn't ask for forgiveness, then continue to wallow in our guilt. We mustn't ask for protection and then stand there frightened as a mouse. No, we must pray with absolute faith, believing that God can and will hear and answer as He has promised. And He has promised. In John 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now again, we take that in the parallel recognition that if it is contrary to his good will for us, he's going to answer differently than we expected. But he says he's going to answer. Chapter 16, he says... Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. So we can be utterly confident that God will hear our prayer, that God will provide for our needs when we ask it. So we must ask with confidence. James 1 verse 6 cautions that he who prays while doubting is like a wave of the sea, entirely unstable. Such men, it says are double-minded. They claim to trust in God, but in reality, they act as though God is powerless. That double-mindedness is poison to the church and poison to the Christian. Nothing destroys the confidence of God's people like prayers spoken with doubt. They pray for God to protect them from persecution, then cower and refuse to engage in the, with the world for fear of the response. 
They pray for God to bless their leaders, then question every decision those leaders make. They pray for God to convert their neighbors, then refuse to talk to their neighbors lest their neighbors scorn them. That's poison. Doubt undermines our faith and renders the church impotent. Rather than doubt, we need to trust in God. We need to pray. We need to lay our needs before Him. And then we need to act in the confidence that He will answer. That He will do what is good. And we're able to trust God's promises because we know the nature of our God. If a son... I'm sorry. Wrong verse. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish... Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Our Father is faithful. Personally, as a father, I love to give good things to my children. I love to give them things that they will enjoy, things that will delight them. I love to give them things that will help and prosper them in using their gifts. But as much as I love to give good things to my children, God is infinitely more passionate about giving good things to His. In fact, His passion for doing good to us is so great that He didn't write us off when He could have, when He justly could have. But instead, as we said before, He paid the unthinkably great price to redeem us. What then among our needs is he going to ignore? There is nothing. There is nothing. Beloved, our God loved us so much that he sent his son to suffer the consequences of hell for us so that we could enjoy the blessings of heaven. Now in response, God who has reconciled us to himself, tells us to pray, to speak with him, to enjoy communion with him. How can we not? So let us pray in confident response to God's word. Let us pray completely revealing our needs to him. And let our prayers show continual reliance that he who promised is faithful. And we will see that faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and gracious to us. We need you. We need your care. We need your provision. Indeed, we can't endure a single day apart from you. Teach us then to trust in you, to love you, to commune with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, let us stand and sing. We're going to sing together hymn number 518 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, Come My Soul with Every Care. This is a song that just reminds us of the importance and the joy of prayer. So we're going to sing all the stanzas of 518.
Our offering this evening is to support the work of the cadets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the young men of this congregation and for the blessing it is to raise them up to know and serve you. We pray that you would bless the cadets program as an element of our aim at doing that. We pray that you would bless the offering that we bring to support and encourage them. And Lord, receive this offering as a token of our thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song is Psalm 4 from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, number 4. We'll sing stanzas 1, 3, 5, 6, and 7.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.